Hi, I'm Ron Hogan, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Victoria Lustolo. Her book is This Is How You Say Goodbye, a daughter's memoir. It's just out from St. Martin's Press, and I'm delighted to have you on the show today, Victoria. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Tell us a little bit about how this memoir started for you. There's a couple things going on here. I mean, there's like the present track where you're traveling to a lot of different places, but the motivation for all those travels is rooted in a, in a past track, which also is running concurrently throughout the story. Absolutely. Really, the roots of the memoir go back to my senior project, senior year of high school. And I did a collection of essays for that which at that time were primarily just memories of my father and my childhood and the two of us, and it really didn't go beyond that. And I certainly wasn't thinking in terms of a book at that time. I was focused on graduating high school and going to college. And then several years later, when I was fresh out of college, I went back to those essays and started looking at them and sort of initially had to kind of get over that cringe of reading, you know, old work from four or five years prior. But once I got beyond that, thought that there was some worthwhile stuff there. And I was still continuing to struggle with my dad and my memories of him and our relationship and the impact that that had had on me and sort of the ways in which it was coming up in my present day life. And to backtrack a little bit there, your father had died when you were 11. Yes. And... Let's talk a little bit about the circumstances behind that, Absolutely. because that's a key part of the story, yes, too. Yes, it is. That's <laughs> crucial. Yes, he passed away um, right just right the week of my 11th birthday, and he had, at that point, he had full-blown AIDS. He actually committed suicide, but more than likely, if he had not committed suicide, he would have died from complications with AIDS within a year or two. And he had contracted HIV when I was four in 1989. And at that point, when he realized that he was HIV positive, that forced his hand. He had to come out. And that's when he told my mother that he was gay. He announced on Mother's Day of 1989 that he was gay and HIV positive. And I don't know that he would have come out, maybe eventually, but I think it would have been, you know, could have been 10, 15, 20 years after that. And as you talk about it in the book, there were some really unusual circumstances to your home life that enabled him to, to lead that double life, particularly for so long. Yes, and that he had constructed. Yes. When, shortly after I was born, I was just a few weeks old, he applied for and got a job in San Jose, California, which is a few hours from Sacramento, where I was raised. And he convinced my mother that it was a higher paying job, it was a promotion, and so he wanted to take it. But he convinced her that he should take it and that we should stay in Sacramento rather than the whole family moving to San Jose. He said, you've got this great job in Sacramento, you work for state government, uh, you know, don't, don't lose that, it's not worth it. And so they did that, and so he was commuting to San Jose every Monday, and he would come back to Sacramento on Friday evenings. Um, so he really got to kind of have his cake and eat it, too. He and my mom were very close, and he liked having her, and he liked coming home on the weekends and having our family, but not at the expense of being able to live a life as a 
essentially single, you know, gay man in the San Francisco Bay Area. What was your sense of, of this situation growing up? Yeah, I'm thinking especially of that transition point at which suddenly the explanation for why your dad is gone, is really gone every week, comes through. and Right. And then how that changes your perception of, of your parents. Sure. Well, you know, kids are incredibly perceptive. Yeah. And, and it doesn't even take a particularly perceptive child to notice that their father is gone during the week and the fathers of their friends are not. So I think pretty early on I had a sense that something was different about my family. And, you know, I went to, it was a Catholic elementary school, a Catholic community. We lived just a few blocks from the school and the church. My mother had been raised a very strong Catholic. So most of my friends had, you know, one, two, three siblings. So that was the other thing, too, was not only did they come from two-parent households where, you know, of course in Catholicism, divorce is frowned upon, but also the families tend to be larger. So to be an only child and to be being raised by what felt like a single mom, I definitely clued into that very early on. But, you know, I really think my parents had an interesting approach that I actually think benefited me tremendously, which is that they never sat down and had a conversation with me and made a really big deal about what was going on. It was more that they were always open to conversations, but they allowed me to initiate them. And I think the thought process was, if she's old enough to ask the question, then she's old enough for the answer. So they really let me take the initiative. And so I sort of pieced it together over time. And, you know, here and there, kind of nonchalantly or trying to be subtle about it, as subtle as a five-year-old or six-year-old can be, I would inquire, you know, I'd you know, say, how come dad's only home, you know, on Friday and Saturday? Or, you know, how come friend Y has three siblings and I don't have any and those types of things? And so that was kind of how we dealt with it. But there wasn't ever sort of one moment where we sort of all had to sit down as a family and it was explained to me that, that my dad liked men or that he was sick just kind of came out piece by piece. And it also seems like once your mom got over the obvious hurt and disappointment that would come from, from that revelation, Sure. that in a way it almost improved their relationship, that they were able to dispense with the illusion of the marriage and just concentrate on being friends. Yeah, I think you said it really well. And actually it's one of the things that I love most about being able to share this story in this book in a public way is that I think it's a moment to kind of take in my mom's remarkable response to the situation. She loved my father very much, and I think he was the love of her life. And she did take her vows as a good Catholic girl very seriously. And so when he came out to her, and again, he wasn't just saying I'm gay, he's saying I'm HIV positive. And in the late 80s, you know, that was a death sentence. So that kind of trumped the gay card in some ways, and the focus of that conversation and subsequent conversations was really his health. And to her, it was in sickness and in health. You know, it didn't change her love for him. And I also think that it was a relief for her because she had known something was wrong and something wasn't working for a long time. And now she knew what it was. And it wasn't personal. It was like, yeah, I'm not a man. If you're not into women, like, I can't compete with that. And so I think finally having having the opportunity to the for the first time in knowing each other, which at that point they'd known each other, you know, 13 years, to have an honest relationship. It's the first time they could really be truthful. I think that was huge and took time, but 
I think her love for him, her concern about him being ill and wanting to be there for him and not blaming him, I think understanding the generation that he came from and the community that he was raised in and recognizing that while some of his decisions had been very hurtful to her, that in many ways he was kind of backed into a corner. And because he died when you were so young, I mean, you had a pretty good relationship with him growing up under the circumstances, but you never got to that phase where you really got to learn more about him as a person rather than just as dad. Exactly. And the journeys that you undertook as an adult that you write about in the memoir are a way to go through that process. Well, exactly. And that's sort of what, you know, to talk about the shape of the memoir, it ultimately became, you know, half of it is kind of those early childhood memories of me and my dad and what I remember. And then there's that present day narrative that you've alluded to a couple times. And the notion was to to have this, to take this opportunity to try and find my dad as an adult, potentially have a, a better perspective. I think, you know, not only was I a child, but he was very sick and he was on a lot of medication. And so even if I had been an adult, if I had only known him for those 10, 11 years, I wouldn't really have been getting to know who he really was. I think so much was clouded by the illness. And I really wanted to get to know him through the eyes of people who had loved him and been with him when he was healthy and maybe happier. And so the, the modern day chapters were sort of my exploration of that, of interviewing people who knew him and reading letters and tape recordings that he had made and traveling to places where he had lived. And of course, the overarching thing was this invitation that he had given me at eight years old, which was to go on a trip around the world together. And of course, that never happened. He passed away, and it was also totally un wildly unrealistic for a dying man and an eight-year-old child to travel around the world together for a year. And so I wanted to take an abbreviated version of that trip and kind of reclaim that lost experience that we might have had um, under other circumstances. In visiting the places that you and your dad had talked about visiting when you were a kid, it sounds like not only was it a way for you to connect with him, but it was also a, an opportunity for a lot of self-introspection that yes, you had not had a chance to do. Yes. Or and not I, taking the chance to do. Yeah, exactly. And I think that was an almost equal motivation for the trip and the book itself. Yeah, you know, I wanted to get to know my dad, and that's what it was initially in my mind. But eventually I started to realize I'm trying to get to know myself, too. This isn't just my dad. And in, and in finding him, I think I'm trying to find myself, which I think is a, is a common quest for anyone in their early to mid-20s who, you know, you're still kind of plain adult. <laughs> um, there's so much you don't know, and you have bills now, and you have, you know, a, a job and, and rent and responsibilities, and so you're you're kind of trying to keep up with all of these obligations, but you're sort of flying by the seat of your pants. And to a certain extent, I suppose we do that our entire lives. But I felt like maybe I could be doing it a little better, and that if I could resolve the complicated feelings that I had about my dad and, and my childhood, that maybe I would be a little bit better at adult life <laughs> than I was at, you know, 24, 25, when I first started writing this seriously. Tell me a little bit about the process of deciding to take this personal journey and turn it into 
a piece of public art. Sure. You know, I think that's another thing that I benefited from not really knowing what I was getting into and being as young as I was, that I felt compelled to do it. And yet it's probably a good thing that I couldn't, that I initially couldn't logically think through all the repercussions. I mean, I have no regrets, but it is certainly much more complicated than I think I realized when I started out on this journey. I feel like all these complications could be a second book. But you know, what it really came down to for me was if there was one thing that I could say to my dad now, I would want him to know that he was loved and accepted because I think those are two things that he really, really struggled with. I think everybody struggles with them to a certain extent, but I think he had a harder time than most for some obvious reasons and maybe some not so obvious reasons. And in wanting to be able to tell my dad that, I also thought, well, maybe there's someone else out there who needs to know that message. And I published a, a short essay um, that eventually ended up in the book about spreading my dad's ashes in a newspaper article. And the response, and that was several years before the book, the response I got from people, from strangers I'd never met, emails that they sent me and letters that they wrote was extraordinary. And in reading these reactions to this very short piece, I realized that when you share your story in a public way, it's an opportunity for other people to share their stories and people see their own stories in your story, and it's maybe the first step to empathy and to slowly eradicating some of the shame that people feel. And so I, it took me a while to sort of put these pieces together, but I started to realize that I felt that I had something of an obligation to share this story, because if I didn't, then that's one less opportunity out there for empathy and acceptance and one more person who's maybe going to continue to feel shameful about something that they shouldn't have to feel shame about. And I realized that if I wanted to grow up and be this adult that I was so interested in being, I had to figure out how to live honestly and openly. And this was kind of one really big way that I could do that is let me just put it all out there you know not only my dad's story but even more importantly my own story and put that vulnerability on the line and if I'm willing to be this honest and this open in this kind of public forum then maybe I'll invite that into my life with the other relationships that I have and maybe encourage other people to do the same and then that was kind of the crucial difference between this being a diary entry or something that I just shared with an immediate family. The feeling that it could have a, a wider impact, hopefully. I mean, that's the hope. You know, you never know. But you never know unless you try, I guess. And it's an interesting cultural moment to do this process of sharing in now, I think. I know that you've done an event, for example, with Alicia Abbott, mm -hmm. who has been a guest on this show as well. Although some of the particulars of your two stories are different. You both are writing about growing up with gay fathers with HIV. You know, Marco Roth has also written a really great memoir. I was just thinking memoir. about that. Yeah, the mm -hmm. scientist. The fact that all three of these stories are coming out within a year of each other, that enough time has passed from the late 80s, early 90s, that we can finally talk about these things. With, and you mentioned shame earlier, that the shame has abated. It's okay to talk about this now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's... It's key that, that the three of us as writers represent a new generation that 
you know, we had some inkling of the shame and the sense that secrets were necessary, but that was largely fading away as we came into our own, into adulthood. That certainly was not the case for our fathers or for their families or their parents. And so in some ways, I think we're the first generation to be able to speak about this. We've got one foot on both sides, right? Because we have this intimate understanding of what it was like to to be in that situation because we saw it so up close in our own families. But at the same time, we were growing up in a larger world where social attitudes were changing. And so I think to be able to speak to both of those sides, both of those perspectives rather, is, is really important and is really interesting. And I think also we've got just enough distance from it in a way that maybe our fathers didn't and their partners didn't or their parents or siblings did not. It still feels incredibly close to my heart, but at the same time, just because I loved my father and watched him suffer doesn't mean that I now understand what it means to be gay. And and so I think that's, you know, something that I, I, I want to make clear as well, that I'm not trying to speak for an older generation, but I do think that we have an interesting take on what was both a long time ago and yet not very much time at all. And you mentioned just now the limits of your knowledge as it unfolds mm-hmm. in the learning of this memoir and the writing of it. I'm also interested perhaps in the limits of that in terms of, say, you know, there's this idea that the memoir is supposed to be a cathartic experience or a healing ex- process. And the truth, as I've gathered from talking to a lot of memoir writers over the the years, is that it's a lot more complex than that. I think in a best-case scenario, before you sit down to write a memoir, because that's it, right? Memoir is, it's not an autobiography. It's not your life story. Memoir is memory. And to me, it's, if you're writing a memoir, it's a reflection on a period of time. Just that memory. Just that time. Nothing else. And... It, it can't be too raw. You have to be ready to talk about that memory. And I think sometimes people try and start memoirs before they're really ready. I, I don't think the memoir can really do the work of the healing. I think you kind of have to be well on your way to healing, I guess, by the time you can really write a good memoir or at least have sort of a solid foundation that you've taken care of some of the superficial emotional heartache of the issue because when you do sit down to write a memoir it brings up all these other things that you maybe never even considered you know i think sometimes there is this tendency to put sort of a pat like oh it's so cathartic and it made everything better and that's not quite how i would describe it i think for me it both deepened the loss and set it free and i say that it deepened the loss because i got to know my father better through this book And I also got to know the people who loved him better. And so getting to know him better, you know, I I loved him even more. And as my knowledge of him grew, that allowed the sort of the depth of my love for him to grow. And then also seeing the other people who had loved him and who were hurt by him or by the loss of him or the combination of both, you made it more painful. And also, too, that here's this amazing guy that you fall in love with all over again and He's not there. Right. Exactly. And this whole book, which in some ways is my attempt to speak to him, you know, you're speaking to someone who can never really hear it, which brings its own emotional roller coaster along with it. On the other hand, 
one of the things that had made losing him at such a young age so hard was that sense of not really getting to know him and not really having the chance to have any sort of you know, real meaningful relationship with him. And so to the best of my abilities, since he's not here, this was sort of the second best option. And so releasing him in that way of, well, I, I now have a much fuller relationship with you than I did. And so, so now it's much easier to let us both rest and to make peace with that situation and not feel so haunted by it. Having settled those ghosts or, or those mm-hmm. disruptions, being able to then moving forward, new relationships. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of that also comes back to what I was talking about before, that idea of needing to be honest and open. And despite, I think, my parents' best efforts, I was still raised keenly aware of secrets and the idea that there are people who live their whole lives around secrets and that that's that's how they function that's the only way that they know how to move through the world and maybe that works for some people i kind of think that my impression and from what i've seen of it it doesn't work particularly well it makes you an unhappy sad frustrated angry person often but you know i don't know maybe for some people you know that's not the case i just knew it wasn't the right answer for me and so i felt very strongly that Secrets are poisonous, and they're always poisonous. doesn't matter what the secret is. It's just the nature that it has to be a secret. And that's not the way I wanted to go through the world. So I didn't think that I was really going to be able to be a healthy, productive member of any sort of relationship until I really felt like I had brought forth all those dark, dirty secrets, whether they were mine or my family's or whatnot, out into the open and said, you know, this stops now. This stops with my dad's generation. It's not going to happen to me. It's not going to happen to my future children. This isn't the way that we engage the world. And and in fact, then the, the gentleman who I start dating in the book and who I am still with today, um, you know, one of the things that drew me to him right from the get-go was just how open he was just what a you know what you see is what you get type of guy comes from a family of lawyers and he loves to argue and debate and talk about what's going on and that's just not the world it came from but I don't think that without this book which I had already started when Ben and I started dating I would have even been open to someone like that because there would have been all sorts of red flags you know it's like oh no you know this guy's gonna make me talk about stuff (laughs) I don't want to talk about stuff you know I don't I don't want to you know get real I want to just be able to shut down which had sort of been my you know my ammo previously and so I really credit the book with kind of making me realize that that there are better, easier ways of going through life that are much more enriching. And in working through that process and learning to open up, were there particular memoirs and memoir writers that you saw and were like, this is what I want to do? There were certainly books that inspired me. And I am a huge fan of fiction, nonfiction. In fact, I think in the book it's clear that I've been reading since I was a young age and books were... You know, I feel like in some ways I was raised by books, which is unfair a little bit to my parents, but I do think there's some truth in that, that I really look to books from an early age for guidance, figuring out how the world works. So sure, you know, without even really making a conscious effort, I think as I started to get into the thick of this book, I found myself drawn to all sorts of titles. And it's interesting, the books you find inspiring, because they're not necessarily all memoirs. But I do think Philip Roth's memoir about his father... Patrimony 
which I would argue is his best work. And that's as someone who also loves fiction. So, you know, not just a nonfiction reader or writer. I thought that that was such an extraordinary portrayal of that dynamic. And what I like about that book in particular is that there's all sorts of other things that are going on in Philip's Rock life during that time that you don't hear about. And I think that's okay. That he was very, I think he's gotten some flack for that in, in subsequent years. And personally, I think part of the power of that book is that it is so focused on that dynamic. And it doesn't have to be this, this tell-all. That's part of the art, I guess, of crafting a memoir and shaping it, is knowing what to include and what to leave out. And just because it happened doesn't mean it needs to be in the memoir. And that was really one of the first memoirs that that I saw that, or at least, you know, maybe that I was ready to see it. And I've, I've now read it a couple more times since then, and I sort of suspect that in five or six years, I'll probably pick it up and read it again, which is the other thing that I like in particular about memoirs. Although it's it's true with fiction as well, but how you relate to someone's real story changes depending on where you are in your life. And so I would be curious to see how my reactions to certain scenes that have struck in my mind will be different in years to come. You've talked a little bit about how the process of writing this memoir has equipped you emotionally but how about the ways in which writing this is how you say goodbye have prepared you as a writer for for future projects well it taught me how to write a book right i mean this was something that i knew that i wanted to write and that i felt compelled to write i felt like i had to but i didn't know what i was doing it's one thing to jot down some memories but how do you how do you shape that into a book with a beginning middle and end and and again just because it's a memoir doesn't mean it doesn't need a narrative arc i mean in many ways i think memoir is much more closely aligned with fiction than some other works of nonfiction that are perhaps more research-based or some of the sort of like pop psychology books that are popular right now which are great books but that's just a very different type of writing and even though memoir and those books are both nonfiction, and I definitely believe very strongly in the idea that a memoir is nonfiction and that you know you can't take artistic license with the facts that being said you do have to approach the memoir like a story yes they're real people but to the readers they are their characters where are those characters going and how are they going to grow how are they going to change what happens to them really matters and those were all things that I had to consider in a much more in-depth way than in the short stories that I had written previously, because it was just so much longer. You know, it's a book-length piece. Where you want to take somebody and how they're going to get there is crucial. And I think I also have a tendency in my writing to, which I'm sure ties back to resistance to communication or communicating as honestly and openly as I can that I tend to want to hold back not say too much not over explain let the action speak for itself and I think there's absolutely something to be said for that but at the same time I think that maybe works can work better in shorter pieces than in longer pieces and so I had to figure out a way to expand on some of those ideas 
while still letting the action speak for itself and not over-explain, which is much harder when you're trying to write something that's book-length. So I think all of those lessons are something that I will take to my next project. But it is interesting with memoir because now I feel like I'm back to square one. Whatever I write next, not going to be a memoir. And whether it's fiction or some other type of nonfiction book, it's like, well, I've never done this before, so now i got to figure out how to do this. I kind of like that challenge, but it's maybe a little scarier than someone who's just finished a novel who says, all right, now I'm going to write another novel. At least they know, like, all right, I've written a novel. I can do that. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> we'll look forward to seeing how you rise to that new challenge, whatever it might be. Thank you. I've been talking with Victoria Lustelow about her memoir, This Is How You Say Goodbye. It's been published by St. Martin's Press. And you have been listening to Life Stories. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find it in the iTunes store and subscribe there. And I hope you will. And if you get a moment to rate it and review it as well, that would be fantastic. Thanks, and I hope to see you again soon. Bye.